most potent story tonight, the most potent story across the world, is one of financial ruin, desperation, and enslavement of a frightened and abused working class to a heartless, tyrannical corporate employer. 64,000 is the median number of words per book. Average person reads about 200 words per minute. Simple math will tell us that is one book in 320 minutes. To accomplish this in seven days, numbers say you would have to read for 45 minutes a day. Don't forget to subscribe. Hit that notification button, like, comment, and share. Enjoy. Welcome to the Book of the Week series. Every week, as I read another amazing title, I share it with the world. My name is Igor S.F. Walker. Today, we look at Empire of Illusions, the end of literacy, and the triumph of spectacle by Chris Hedges. So, how about you slow down and relax? Reduce all that noise for just a bit. Make that choice and decide to listen. In this video, we look at a striking and an unsettling exploration of illusion and fantasy in contemporary American culture. A society beholden to empty spectacle, an obsession with image at the expense of reality, reasoning, and truth. The mechanisms that undermine our democracy and then divert us from the economic, environmental, political, and moral collapse around us. Stick around till the end. I will share with you some tools I have in use that will help you tremendously in this game of life. Discover a way to find out what actually motivates you. What innate human need is driving all of your decisions and your behavior. I will share some tools to improve your self-awareness, social awareness, self-management, and relationship management. As the wrestlers appear to strut down the aisle, the crowd, mostly young working class males, knows by heart the long list of vendettas and betrayals being carried into the ring. The matches are always acts of retribution for a host of elaborate and fictional wrongs, the narratives of emotional wreckage reflected in the Wrestlers' staged biographies actually mirrors the emotional wreckage of the fans. This is the deep appeal of professional wrestling. It is the appeal of much of popular culture, from Jerry Springer to reality television to Oprah Winfrey. The narratives expose the anxiety that we will die and never be recognized, or acclaimed that we will never be wealthy, that we are not among the chosen, but remain part of the vast anonymous masses. The ringside sagas are designed to reassure us. They hold out the hope that we, humble and unsung as just these celebrities once were, will eventually be blessed with grace and with fortune. The success of professional wrestling, like most of the entertainment that envelops our culture, 
lies not only in fooling us that these stories are real, rather it succeeds because we ask to be fooled. We happily pay for the chance to suspend reality. We risk being the first people in history to have been able to make their illusions so vivid, so persuasive, so realistic that we can live in them. We're the most illusioned people on earth ever, yet we dare not become disillusioned because our illusions are the very house in which we do live. They are our news, our heroes, our adventure, our forms of art, our very experience. Celebrity culture. It's not a convergence of consumer culture and religion, but rather it is a hostile takeover of religion by consumer culture. Commodities in celebrities' culture define what it means to belong, how to recognize our success in society, and how we conduct our lives. Celebrity culture is at its core the denial of death. It is the illusion of immortality. Now, we all have gods. Martin Luther King said it is just a question of which ones. Mass culture contributes to self-delusion and social control and illicit behaviors that is often self-destructive. The great contemporary terror is anonymity. If Lionel Trilling was uh, right in the property that grounded the self, in Romanticism was sincerity, and in Modernism it was authenticity, then in Postmodernism it is visibility. Celebrities who often come from humble backgrounds are held up as proof that anyone, even we, can be adored by the world. Celebrities like saints are living proof that the impossible is always possible. Our fantasies of belonging, of fame, of success, of fulfillment are projected onto celebrities. And these fantasies are stroked by the legions of those who amplify the culture of illusion, who persuade us that the shadow isn't real, the juxtaposition of the impossible illusions inspired by celebrity culture and our insignificant individual achievements, however, eventually leads to frustration, anger, insecurity, and invalidation. It results, ironically, in a self-perpetuating cycle that drives us frustrated, alienated individuals with even greater desperation and hunger and away from reality back towards the empty promises of those who seduce us and tell us what we want to hear. We beg for more. We ingest these lies until our money runs out and then we fall into despair. We medicate ourselves as if happiness that we have failed to find in this hollow game is our deficiency. And of course, we are told it is our deficiency. Human beings become a commodity in a celebrity culture. They are objects, just like consumer products. They have no intrinsic value. The cult of self 
dominates our cultural landscape. This cult has within it the classic traits of sociopaths. Superficial charm, grandiosity, self-importance, a need for constant stimulation, attention for lying, deceit and manipulation, and the inability to feel remorse or even guilt. This is, of course, the ethic promoted by the corporations. It is the ethic of the unfettered capitalism. This cult of distraction makes the real disintegration of culture. It seduces us to engage in imitative consumption. It deflects the moral questions that do arise from mounting social injustice, growing inequalities, costly imperial wars, economic collapse, and political corruption. The wild pursuit of status and wealth has destroyed our souls and our economy. In an age of images and entertainment, in an age of instant emotional gratification, we neither seek nor want honesty and reality. Reality is complicated, it is boring. We are incapable or unwilling to handle its confusion. We ask to be indulged and then confronted by cliches, stereotypes, and inspirational messages that tell us we can be whoever we seek to be. That we live in the greatest country, greatest time, that we are endowed with superior moral and physical qualities and that our future will always be glorious and prosperous, either because of our own attributes or our national character or because we are blessed by God. In this world, all that matters is the consistency of our belief systems. Truth is irrelevant. Those who succeed in politics, as in most of the culture, are those who create the most beautiful fantasy. A public that can no longer distinguish between truth and fiction is actually left to interpret reality through illusions. When opinions cannot be distinguished from facts, when there's no universal standard to determine truth in law, in science, in scholarship, or in reporting events of the day, when the most valued skill is the ability to entertain, the world becomes a place where lies become truth, where people can believe what they want to believe, pseudo-events. Pseudo-events destabilize truth. They're convincing enough and appear real enough to manufacture their own facts, creating within us feelings and perceptions about politicians, celebrities, our nation, our culture, that are actually just mirages generated by pseudo-events, the use of pseudo-events to persuade rather than overtly brainwash renders millions of us unable to see or to question the structures and the systems that are empowering us and in some cases actually destroying our lives. The flight into illusion sweeps away the core values of the open society. It corrodes the ability to think for oneself, to draw independent conclusions, to express dissent, 
when judgment and common sense tell you something is wrong. To be self-critical, to challenge authority, to grasp historical facts, to advocate for change, and to acknowledge that there are other views and different ways and structures of being that are morally and socially acceptable. A populace deprived of the ability to separate lies from truth that has become a hostage to the fictional assemblance from reality put forth by pseudo-events is no longer capable of sustaining a free society. Those who slip into this illusion <coughs> ignore the signs of impeding disaster. What does it say about our culture that cruelty is so easy to market? Jensen asks, what is the difference between glorifying violence in war and glorifying the violence of sexual domination? I think that the reason porn is so difficult for many people to discuss is not that it is about sex. Our culture is saturated in sex. The reason it is difficult is that porn exposes something very uncomfortable about us. We accept a culture flooded with images of women who are sexual commodities. Increasingly, women and pornography are not people having sex, but bodies upon which sexual activities of increasing cruelty are played out. And for many men, and maybe even majority of men, like it. The violence, cruelty, the degradation of porn are expressions of a society that has lost the capacity for empathy. The Abu Ghraib images that were released, and then the hundreds more disturbing images that remain classified, could be actually stills from porn films. The photographs reflect the raging undercurrent of sexual callousness and perversion that actually runs through contemporary culture. These images speak in the language of porn, professional wrestling, reality TV, music videos, and corporate culture. It is the language of absolute control, total domination, racial hatred, fetishistic images of slavery, and humiliating submissions. And in a world without a pity, it is about reducing other human beings to commodities, things, objects. Sexual callousness and emancipation have become synonymous. Fashion takes its cues from porn. Music videos feature porn stars and then pantomime porn scenes, commercials and advertisements. They milk porn for shock value. The grainy sex tapes of celebrities from Pamela Anderson to Paris Hilton enhance their allure as porn icons Madonna has built her public persona and her dance routines and videos around the sexual boundaries obliterated by porn. 50 Cent, Snoop Dogg and Yella produce porn. Howard Stern interviews porn stars. Fitness clubs offer pole class dancing in strip classes. Jenna Jameson's memoir that was published 
New York Times bestseller for six weeks. The E! True Hollywood Story episode of her life remains the highest rated single episode of that show. Reality television shows like The Girls Next Door and Rock of Love feature a male celebrity who then has multiple female partners competing for his affection. The language, abuse and moral bankruptcy of porn shape and mold popular culture. And there's a direct line from the heartlessness and usury of the culture of porn to the hookup parties in college campuses in which young men and women get hammered, have sex, and then do not speak to each other ever again. <coughs> it is the belief that because I have the ability to use force and control to make others do as I please, I have the right to use this force and control. It is the uh, disease of corporate and imperial power. It extinguishes the sacred and the human to actually worship power, control, force and pain. It replaces empathy, eros and the compassion with the illusion that we are gods. Porn is the glittering facade, just like the casinos and resorts in Las Vegas. Just like the rest of the fantasy that is America. Culture seduced by death. Harvard, Yale, Princeton, Stanford, Cambridge, the University of Toronto, Paris's political studies, along with the most elite schools, do only a mediocre job of teaching students to question and to think. They focus instead through their filter of standardized tests, enrichment activities, AP classes, high-priced tutors, swanky private schools, entrance exams, and then blind deference to authority on creating hordes of competent systems managers. The responsibility for the collapse of the global economy runs in a direct line from the manicured quadrangles and academic halls in Cambridge, New Haven, Toronto, Paris, all the way to the financial and politi political centers of power. These unique universities disdain honest intellectual inquiry, which is by its nature distrustful of authority, fearlessly independent and then often subversive, highly specialized vocabulary. This vocabulary, a sign of a specialist and of course the elitist towards universal understanding, it keeps the uninitiated from asking unpleasant questions. It destroys the search for the common good. Faculty, students and experts dices them into tiny specialized fragments. And then those who critique the system itself, people such as Noam Chomsky, Howard Zinn, Dennis Kucinich, Ralph Nader, are marginalized. And then they're shut off the mainstream debate. These elite universities have banished self-criticism. They refuse to question a self-justifying system. See, in 1967, Theodore Dorno wrote an essay titled education after Auschwitz, 
What he argued is that the moral corruption that made the Holocaust possible remained largely unchanged. And that the mechanisms that render people capable of such deeds must be uncovered, examined, critiqued through education. Schools have to teach more than just skills. They have to teach values. If they didn't, another Auschwitz was always possible. <clears throat> Berkeley negotiated a deal with British Petroleum for $500 million. BP gets access to the university's researchers and technological capabilities. Built by decades of public investment, than to investigate biofuels and new energy in the new Energy Bioscience Institute. BP can shut down another research center and then move into a publicly subsidized one. BP will receive intellectual property rights when, from which it can then profit on scientific breakthroughs that are expected to come out of a joint project. See, Berkeley is a microcosm of the intrusion of corporations into education. Education, at least an education that challenges assumption and teaches students to be self-critical, has been sacrificed in a Faustian bargain. The more we are flooded, with a peculiar breed of specialists who use obscure code words as a way to avoid communication, the specialists blindly services tiny parts of a corporate power structure he or she has never been taught to question. Specialists look down on the rest of us who do not understand what they are talking and writing about. With this thinly veil of contempt. These people are illiterate. They cannot recognize the vital relationship between power and morality. They have forgotten or never knew that moral traditions are the product of civilization. They have little or no knowledge of their own civilization and so they do not know it. And they do not know, therefore, how to maintain it. Those who suffer from historical amnesia. The belief that we are unique in history and have nothing to learn from the past. Well, they remain children. They live in an illusion. The specialized dialect. This narrow education of doctors, academics, economists, social scientists, military officers, investment bankers, and government bureaucrats keep each sector locked in its narrow row. The overarching structure of the corporate state and the idea of the common good are irrelevant to specialists. They exist to make the system work, not to examine it. Our elites replicate in modern dress the elaborate mannerisms and archaic forms of speech employed by the calcified, corrupt, and dying aristocrats. They cannot grasp the truth is often relative. Gifted and engaged students 
who use these institutions to expand the life of their mind, and ask the big questions, and who cherished what these schools had to offer were often marginalized minority, the bulk of their classmates, most of them who headed off to Wall Street or corporate firms when they graduated with opening salaries at $120,000 a year, <coughs> did prodigious amount of work, and faithfully regurgitated information. The bankruptcy of our economic and our political systems can be traced directly to the assault against the humanities. <coughs> Those in charge, because they are educated only in specialized design to maintain these economic political structures, have run out of ideas. They have been trained only to find solution that will maintain the system. They do not even have the capacity for critical reflection. They do not understand that for every answer there arises another question. The very basis behind the Socratic Academy's search for wisdom. A culture that does not grasp the vital interplay between morality and power, which mistakes management techniques for wisdom, which fails to understand that the measure of a civilization is its compassion, not its speed or ability to consume, condemns itself to death. Now they do not see their own biases or the causes of their own frustrations. One naturally praises and prizes what one most possesses, and what most makes for one's advantages, but social intelligence and emotional intelligence and creative ability, to name just three other forms of intelligence, are not distributed preferentially among the educational elite. Intelligence is morally neutral, as John Ruskin said, isn't any less wicked when you grab it with the power of your brains than with the power of your fists. They're socialized to obey. They obsess over grades and they seek to please professors even if what their professors teach is facious. The point is to get ahead, and getting ahead means deference to authority. Challenging authority is never a career advancer. Our elites, the ones in Congress, on Wall Street, the ones being produced at prestigious universities and business schools, they actually do not have the capacity to fix our financial mess. Indeed, they will actually make it worse. They have no concept, thanks to the education they have received, of how to replace a failed system with a new one. They're petty, they're timid, they're uncreative bureaucrats, superbly trained to carry out systems management. the only piecemeal solution, and it will satisfy the corporate structure. Their entire focus is numbers, profits, and personal advancement. They're able to deny gravely ill people medical coverage, 
to increase companies' profits. As they are to use taxpayer dollars to peddle costly weapon systems to blood-soaked dictatorships. That's what they do. The single most important quality needed to resist evil is moral autonomy. As Immanuel Kant wrote, moral autonomy is possible only through reflection, self-determination, and the courage not to cooperate. Moral autonomy is what the corporate state, with all its coded attacks on liberal institutions and left-wing professors, is really out for to destroy. Our elite has a blind belief in a decaying political and financial system that has nurtured and enriched and empowered it, but the elite cannot solve our problem. They have been trained only to find solutions, such as paying out trillions of dollars of taxpayers' money to bail out banks and financial firms in order to sustain a dead system. The elite and those who work for them, they were never thought how to question the assumptions of their age. The socially important knowledge and cultural ideas embodied in history, in literature, in philosophy and in religion, which are at their core subversive and threatening to authority, they have been banished from public discourse. Ironically, the universities have trained hundreds of thousands of graduates for jobs that soon will no longer exist. They train people to maintain a structure that cannot be maintained, the elite, as well as those equipped with narrow, specialized vocational skills. Know only how to feed the beast until it dies. Once it's dead, they will be helpless. Do not expect them to save us. They do not know how. They do not even know how to ask the questions. And when it all does collapse, when our rotten financial system, with its trillions in worthless assets, implodes, and our imperial wars end in humiliation and in defeat, the power elite will be exposed as being as helpless and as self-deluded as the rest of us. Positive illusions. Described as persuasive, enduring, and systematic. Come, Taylor writes, in three types. Number one, unrealistically positive views of the self. Number two, exaggerated perception of personal control. And number three, unrealistic optimism. All of these illusions can, managed the right way, supposedly improve our lives. The illusions are good for people, she says, and therefore, by extension, unadorned reality is negative. The deeper and the more persuasive an individual's positive illusions, writes Joplin, the greater their effect of diminishing their awareness of themselves, other people, and the situations confronting them. Joplin argues that self-deception strategies are reality filters that organize what people understand into self-relevant and self-serving patterns. With the diminishing of the range of awareness comes a corresponding diminishing of the range of responsiveness. 
and openness to what is real. One's ability to interact intelligently with all of the world's real consequences diminishes. Joplin warns of grave moral consequence for a delusional society. This means that the range of social, emotional, and personal relations that connect us to others, to the social world, and to our own humanity are progressively weakened as self-deceptive strategies become progressively entrenched in behavior and in thought. Now, psychology has a long history of lending its services to the military, to the government, as well as propaganda industries such as advertising, public relations, human management, the National Institute of Mental Health, from which many positive psychologists have generous grants. Though a public institution has numerous government, military, and commercial relationships, positive psychology is only the last incarnation of this assault on community and on the individualism. Since at least a century ago, a number of engineers, businessmen, and scientists realized that technology was no longer the limiting factor of production. Now, it was man that could be engineered, made still more efficient, given the right motivation. There are two aspects of today's industrial relations that are genuinely new. First, the specific psychological techniques used to motivate workers. And then secondly, an increased number of companies willing to experiment with these techniques. Corporatism, aided by positive psychology, relies on several effective coercive persuasion techniques, similar to those often employed by cults, to meld workers into a happy collective. It sanctions interpersonal and psychological attacks, and then lavish praise to destabilize an individual's sense of self and then promote compliance. It uses the coercive pressure of organized peer groups. It applies interpersonal pressure, including attacks on individuality and criticism as a form of negativity, to ensure conformity. It actually manipulates and controls the totality of the person's social environment to stabilize modified behavior. Cultures that cannot distinguish between illusion and reality, they die. All empires, from the Aztecs through ancient Romans through the French monarchy, Austro-Hungarian Empire, they have been characterized by a disconnect between the elites and the reality, the elites were blinded by absurd fantasies of omnipotence and of power that actually doomed their civilizations. We have been steadily impoverished by our own power elites, legally, economically, spiritually, and politically. <coughs> and unless we radically reverse this tide, unless we rest the state away from the corporate hands, we will be dragged down 
by the dark and turbulent undertow of globalization in this world, there are only masters and serfs. How will we cope with our decline? Will we cling to the absurd dreams of a superpower and the fantasies of a glorious tomorrow? Or will we responsibly face our stark new limitations? Will we heed those who are sober and rational? Those who speak of a new simplicity and humility? Or will we follow the demagogues and charlatans who rise up in the moment of crisis and panic to offer fantastic visions of escape? Will we radically transform our system to one that protects the ordinary citizen and defies the corporate state? Or will we empty and employ the brutality of technology that our internal security and surveillance apparatus has to crash all the dissent? Corporate forces that do control the state will never permit real reform. It would mean their extinction. These corporations, especially the oil and gas industry, will never allow us to achieve energy independence. That would devastate their profits. It would wipe out tens of billions of dollars in weapons contracts. It will cripple the financial health of a host of private contracts. This is the harsh unspoken reality of corporate power. Our elites manipulate statistics and data to foster illusions of growth and prosperity. They refuse to admit they have lost control, since to lose control is to concede failure. They contribute instead to the collective denial of reality by insisting that another multi-billion dollar bailout or a government loan will actually prop up the dining, dying edifice, the well-paid television pundits, and then the news celebrities, and then the economists, and the banking and financial sector's leaders, see the world from inside the comfort of the corporate box. Over the past few decades, we have watched the rise of a powerful web of interlocking corporate entities, a network of arrangements within subsectors, industries, or other partial jurisdictions to diminish and often abolish outside control and oversight. These corporations have neutralized national, state, and judicial authority. And we hear little about these stories of pain and dislocation. We are diverted by spectacle and pseudo-events. We are fed illusions. Corporate state that has hijacked the government. When the corporations make the iron demands, are these where these courtiers drop to their knees? They place the telecommunications companies that want to be protected from the lawsuits under their protection. They permit oil and gas companies to rake in obscene profits, and then still keep in place the vast subsidies of corporate welfare shelled out by the state. They allow our profit-driven healthcare system to leave the uninsured and underinsured to suffer, to die without proper care. We trust these courtiers wearing face powder 
who deceive us in the name of journalism. We trust courtiers in our political parties who promise to fight for our interests and then pass bill after bill to actually further the corporate fraud and abuse. We they confuse how we are made to feel about courtiers when it comes to real information, facts and knowledge. This is the danger of a culture awash in pseudo-events. It allows the government to spy on us without any warrants or any cause. It funnels billions in taxpayer dollars to investment firms that actually committed fraud. And it tells us it cares about the protection of our civil rights and of democracy. It is actually a form of collective abuse. And as so often happens, in the weird pathology of a victim and a victimizer, we keep coming back for more. Corruption, mismanagement, and political inertia by the elite, which is beyond the reach of the law, almost always results in widespread cynicism, disengagement, apathy, and then finally rage. Those who suffer the consequences of the mismanagement lose any loyalty to the nation and then increasingly nurse fantasies of violent revenge. The concept of the common good mocked by the behavior of the privileged classes disappears. Nothing matters. It is only about me. But our collapse is more than just economic or political collapse. It is the crisis of faith. The more we sever ourselves from literate print-based world, a world of complexity and nuance, a world of ideas, for one informed by conforming, reassuring images, fantasies, slogans, celebrities, and lust for violence, <laughs> the more we are destined to implode. But even if we fail to halt the decline, it will not be the end of hope. The forces we face may be powerful, ruthless. They may have the capacity to plunge us into a terrific, terrifying dystopia, one where we will see our freedoms curtailed and widespread economic deprivation but no tyranny in history has crushed the human capacity for love. And this love, unorganized, irrational, often propelling us to carry out acts of compassion that jeopardize our own existence, is deeply subversive to those in power. Love, which appears in small, blind acts of kindness, manifests itself even in the horror of Nazi death camps, in the killing fields of Cambodia, in the Soviet gulags, and in the genocides in the Balkans and Rwanda. Hope exists. It will always exist. It will not come through structures or institutions, nor will it come through nation-states, but it will prevail even if we, as distinct individuals and civilization, vanish. The power of love is greater than the power of death. It cannot be controlled. It is about sacrifice, 
for the other. Something nearly every parent understands. Rather than exploitation, it is about honoring the sacred. And power elites have for millennia tried and failed to crush the force of love. Blind and dumb, indifferent to the siren calls of celebrity, unable to bow before illusions, defying the lust for power, love constantly raises up to remind a wayward society of what is real and what is illusion. Love will endure. And there you have it. Empire of illusion, the end of literacy and the triumph of spectacle. Please do help out, show some love. It is easy. Simply like this video so more people can enjoy it. Share it out of love too and spread the word. Leave a comment and do share your thoughts. Now, if you love this, do subscribe to my channel and stay up to date. And the link to this book is in the description below. Buy it, read, never stop learning, especially learning about yourself and nature. So gift yourself by taking the free human needs test on my website and then find out what actually motivates you, what innate human need is driving all of your decisions and your behavior. And if you feel you are ready to improve your self-awareness, social awareness, self-management, and relationship management even further, do check out my Master of Life Awareness program. The links are in the description below. Thank you. Love and respect.